Okay, good uh, morning, ladies and gentlemen. Um, welcome to the, uh, the, the tanker session, the last of our uh, ship type sessions this morning, I think. Uh, we've already had uh, some very interesting discussions around the other uh, ship type sectors, and I'm delighted that um, the organizers have been able to uh, uh, put together such a global representative representation of the industry, uh, not just a, a very strong showing, of course, from the Greek sector, but also covering from Connecticut to Beijing. So welcome to all our panelists. Just to introduce myself, my name's Nick Brown. I have the pleasure of leading Lloyd Register's global marine and offshore business. And perhaps I can just start by asking our panelists just to give a brief introduction to themselves and uh, their companies, uh, perhaps starting with Jerry. Uh, thank you, Nick. Uh, I'm the CEO of uh, Capital Product Partners, uh, a master limited partnership uh, that was uh, listed in uh, 2007. Today we uh, own a total of uh, 36 vessels. It's a diversified fleet across um, uh, product tankers, crew tankers, containers and uh, one odd dry bulk vessel. The uh, common characteristic among uh, all these assets uh, is that uh, they are uh, on period charters giving our unit holders uh, cash flow visibility uh, and um, we have been able over the last uh, 10 years uh, to pay in excess of $750 million of uh, distributions on the back of uh, these period charters. Good morning, everyone. Vasily Kirtsikov, Vice Chairman of Elson Holdings and Chairman CEO of Elson Gas, which is a joint venture with the Blackstone Group on the gas side. So primarily tanker exposure, but also a sizable gas fleet in uh, non-VLGC sizes. So happy to be here again. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. I'm Daniel Xu uh, from ICBC Leasing, and it was my honor to have this opportunity to introduce you to our tanker department as well as SVC Leasing. SVC Leasing is the first financial uh, leasing company in China and uh, recently we are quite active in the uh, shipping finance sector almost uh, in every, every segment. So we are look, uh, Greece is always the target country for our company and we are always looking forward to cooperate with your, uh, your respected company. Thank you. Good morning everyone, I'm Eddie Valentes. I'm the CEO of Pixis Tankers. We are a pure play product tanker company. We specialize in medium range uh, size. Uh, we are a growth company. We are listed at NASDAQ and our ticker is PXS. Good morning, my name is Bob Burke. It's great to be back here in Greece, especially with the weather cooperative this Posidonia. Um, I'm the CEO of Ridgebury Tankers. We have VLs, Suez, and MRs. Uh, we're backed by Riverstone as a private equity group in New York and also some other private equity groups. Um, but we have a full complement of operating and technical people. Good morning, I'm George Aroglu. I'm the Chief Operating Officer of Chacos Energy Navigation. Uh, we, have, we are a very di uh, diversified uh, tanker company. 
with a big uh, footprint uh, in uh, tankers and products, and uh, uh, also a participation in LNG and shuttle tankers. Thank you. Thank you all. So, uh, since our last Posidonia, the tanker market has possibly suffered the most challenging developments with rates uh, uh, being possibly as low as they could be, particularly on the crude side. Uh, and whilst we've seen some recent signs of uh, recovery and VLs edging in some routes towards world scale 50, uh, we've also seen so far in 2018, I think it's fair to say, record levels of scrapping, high scrapping rates, but we've also seen some continued new build activity and crude oil uh, order book now up at 13%, the product market uh, at 8% of the existing fleet. So perhaps I can come to Bob first and we just start uh, by examining the demand side. We have seen some, uh, let's say, uh, encouraging signs around oil prices, perhaps uh, much more encouraging than people would have expected just uh, at the beginning of the year. Uh, oil prices reaching $80 a barrel uh, in recent weeks, three and a half year highs. Bob, some of that, of course, down to unexpected volume decreases in Venezuela. But what do you believe are the short-term demand recovery outlook for the crude sector? That was for me? Yeah, yeah please, okay. Bob. Um, you know, I was talking to someone yesterday and they said, it's a funny market, isn't it? I said, what's so funny? Um, I mean, it's horrible. Uh, you talk to any owner and, you know, we're, we're bouncing along at some small premium to operating costs, especially on the larger ships. Um, and, you know, the market always has to write itself. It's very fragmented, a lot of different owners. You, you can feel the pain when you talk to uh, owners across the board. And, you know, we're, we're eternal optimists, so we wouldn't be in this business. But what we see is, you know, a lot of pressure on scrapping on, on the larger size vessels, especially the Vs. You know, roughly 30 have been out of the market this year. In the real short term, we've seen a lot more crude coming out of the U.S. Gulf um, from the Chinese. I guess it's attributed to two things. Number one, the uh, WTI um, Brent spread. And number two, supposedly the Chinese want to uh, somewhat correct the trade balance, at least for, you know, uh, cosmetic purposes politically. So in the short term, we see continued stress. There are still, pick a number, 30, 40, too many VLs out there, and the Suez's are, you know, somewhat better. Um, you know, it's a more fragmented market as far as demand goes, and, and uh, you know, loading ports and discharge ports that can write itself a little bit easier. But we don't see any significant improvement over the next six months. I mean, we're hopeful for this winter, as we always are. Um, we're saying things will correct on Thanksgiving Day, but that's more of a hope than a prediction. So, uh, you know, we're not highly levered, but we feel the pain like everybody else. Okay, George Vasili, any comments you'd like to add? Uh, I'd, I'd like to say that uh, on the demand side, on the demand side, I have to agree. We have gone through four very strong years with uh, demand growth uh, at least 1.5 million barrels per day, which is uh, significantly above uh, the long-term uh, growth trend which is between 1 to 1.1 million barrels per day. So demand uh, is uh, there to support uh, the market. The order book has been, uh, you know, we're absorbing uh, the order book. And I think we are at uh, the end uh, of, uh, you know, absorbing this. 
the numbers of the new vessels that have entered the fleet in the last uh, two, two years. We have uh, some uh, new, uh, new trade routes developing thanks to the U.S. Uh, export of crude, which was not uh, something that we had a few years back. And uh, I think uh, with uh, the geopolitical risks and uh, the OPEC uh, decision in the next uh, month uh, coming out, which most probably points out to a relaxation in the cuts, I think uh, the stage uh, is there to see a recovery uh, in the tanker uh, freight rates, especially for crude, crude, for crude carriers. I just want to add, uh, Clarkson's Plateau put out a paper a week or two ago, and it showed that every time that uh, OPEC opened the spigots, between the time they did it and a year later, rates increased 100%, 150%. Um, and that's, I think that's where the biggest benefit lies, and couple that with the Iranian fleet that could possibly be laid up or put in storage. It could be, could be a good year next year. I would look at, um, from a demand point of view, I would look at geopolitics as playing the biggest role in the next few months. I think it's very important what happens with Trump and Iran, and uh, it's also very important what happens with Venezuela. If Venezuela further implodes, that's a big plus or minus in the market. And Iran, of course, is a very big factor. So I think the eyes are on the Iranians and what happens with Trump. And I think that would be the swing factor on the demand side for the short term. Um, but I agree with uh, the, the previous speakers that you know the, the problem in tankers now, in bulkers a couple of years ago, in containers, whatever, you know, always in shipping has been supply. So it's never been a demand problem. It's always been a supply problem. To the extent that the supply in tankers is getting normalized or, or, or even you know, below average growth, that's very good for the next couple of years. Okay, thank, thank you. Maybe I just bring uh, Daniel in here. Um, we've seen, obviously, rumors now with OPEC meeting coming up in a, in a few weeks from Saudis and Russia talking about possible increases up to a, a million barrels per day. Daniel, where's your, your slant on this from, you know, the, the demand in China but, and, and your insight from that and how that might drive trade uh, pattern development? Well, um, if I may, and take a step back to what we said earlier, and I think it's very relevant to, what, uh, to the issue of OPEC. In the end, as uh, tanker owners, uh, we are in the volume business, and actually the volume business being transported by sea. In order to understand the market today, you have to, to see what happened over the last couple of years, setting supply aside. Uh, with regard to oil prices and inventories. So OPEC decided to, uh, together with Russia, to cut oil production in order to prop oil prices and, uh, which obviously connected, take down inventories which were bloated. So today, when you look at inventories, they are close to historical averages. Um, at the same time, oil prices have doubled, but um, from a very low point, so actual demand destruction is very little. The IEA is expecting only 100,000 barrels to be saved off uh, their growth projection. So for, the, for OPEC, together with the Iran situation, it is uh, a very good opportunity to start turning the tap on. 
And I do think that um, if this happens, and some say that it has already started happening, that uh, OPEC, um, let's say, compliance has come down. Don't forget that OPEC compliance uh, a couple of months ago was at 170%. So actually, OPEC uh, members were uh, producing even less than their quotas, be it because of their production problems or simply decisions taken by the Saudis in order to help uh, oil prices. So as OPEC oil flows back um, into, um, into the equation, uh, I do think that this could be the inflection point for crude tanker markets uh, if you also look at the supply side. I don't think this will mean necessarily from one day to the next uh, a market uh, that uh, we will see sky-high charter rates. But um, probably the second quarter, and uh, we do hope that this is the case, uh, will be remembered as uh, the low point. And potentially towards the end of the year, early next year, we will see more reasonable earnings. And potentially then in 2020, supercharged by the regulatory uh, impact, a much healthier uh, tanker earnings environment. So uh, my guess would be that OPEC will, will increase uh, production going forward, maybe not to the extent that many players um, um, expect, but uh, it should be the, the start of increased volumes. Thanks, Jerry. Um, Daniel, uh, I hope you don't mind me uh, uh, pulling on you to represent, let's say, China and their demand for imports. How is that uh, and these geopolitical developments influencing ICBC's planning? Uh, from my understanding, uh, I think uh, the most uh, benefit market will be from the crude oil market and uh, also we are trying to import more energy from the uh, US. So for, for this rules might be benefit, but as um, something has changed in China, as you may see there are so many uh, in, in electric cars in the street of China. So in the long term, uh, the oil market may not grows as fast as in the past. So from my understanding, because most of my friends told that for the first cars, it will be uh, desire oil cars, but for the second, they will definitely will choose uh, electric cars. So we are definitely will import uh, more, more from the US uh, 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 in, in, this, uh, in this area, but uh, the, the total volume uh, may not grow as fast as before. So given this rather complicated development pattern, is any of the panelists willing to bet on where they think the, the biggest winners and losers on the trade routes are going to be? Trade route winners and losers? Trade routes. Well, there is one obvious one that looks like Iran, at least in the short term. I mean, uh, last, last time around uh, that uh, secondary sanctions were imposed, the Iranian oil production fell from 2.1 million barrels to 1 million barrels almost uh, overnight. Uh, so that's uh, one definitely that's going to happen. And then, of course, uh, you have Venezuela for um, uh, the reasons that we all know. But I think what we do underestimate is the fact that across the globe, with maybe the exception of uh, the US, 
we have seen a sustained underinvestment in oil production um, as uh, oil prices uh, were at uh, a very low point for years. So I think you will see that many of the traditional um, uh, exporting countries, be it Mexico, West African countries, and so on and so forth, will struggle with their oil production going forward and they lose capacity. Uh, while the U.S. should be able to pick up market share depending on how quickly they manage to get uh, the necessary infrastructure for exports. I think going forward, the next couple of years, the big question mark is how the uh, fuel oil trade will shift given the regulations on the, um, on the emission, you know, on the, the new regulations. So I think the, the, there may be big imbalances on... Um, on bunker fuel, uh, will, which will affect uh, product tanker rates, but uh, you know the the um, I don't think anybody's predicting can predict precisely how that will pan out. But that's something again to watch over the next year or two: how refineries adapt and how trade patterns change. That can have a quite a significant impact. I think there'll be more of this residual fuel coming out of Russia going to the U.S. Gulf because the Russians don't have the refineries to, um, to crack it any further, and the U.S. Gulf refineries do. Um, I think the U.S. Gulf will continue to surprise uh, with, with the exports over the next couple of years. The infrastructure is being built out fairly quickly, and we have a lot of uh, oil that's still bottlenecked in there. Okay, thank you. Now, we've seen... And as I mentioned at the beginning, the low charter rates, particularly in the crude sector, not putting off new investors. Um, recent orders by, let's say, new entrants such as Apollo, uh, orders just in the uh, last few days by uh, Vitol as traders uh, going into the VLCC market. What do we think is driving this uh, continued ordering of new tonnage? Insanity. If, if I may, because putting my capital maritime hat on, we have been part of this uh, order book, so maybe it's, um, yeah, it's a little more reasonable than insanity at least. Um, um, so the age profile of the VLCC fleet right now uh, is about a fifth of, of the VLCC or fleet is uh, more than 15 years of age. If anything, um, as uh, you fast forward to 2020, you'll see that uh, this uh, number gets close to 20% um, uh, of the fleet being more than 20 years of, uh, of age. At the same time, the global order book for crude tankers, it's a fairly reasonable 12%. Um, Demand, as we discussed, is actually quite robust. Um, there's no issue with uh, demand. If anything, I, I think the panel would agree that there is uh, uh, increased ton mile. So the problem is supply. Today you have seen, year to date, you have seen 26 VLCCs being scrapped, 16 uh, being delivered. So you had fleet contraction. Um, some of um, seaborne volumes will be coming back to the market, so you should expect to see more demand potentially more scrapping, and then you have, of course, the regulatory environment. Um, and if you look at the regulatory environment and what it would mean for older ships, B2 
be it because of the installation of ballast water treatment systems, uh, be it because many of these older ships are very inefficient and in a high bunker price environment they will have to be either scrapped or slow steamed. I think the actual supply, the effective supply, be it because of scrapping or slow steaming by 2020, uh, should be much less than the uh, nominal order book shows. So I think we have a fantastic opportunity for um, a very good market in 2020. And then when you look at new building prices, uh, we entered when new building prices were around $80 million, um, despite increases in steel prices, uh, then uh, it was and continues to be a very good investment. Um, so when you look at VTOL, for example, if they order the $90 million, that would mean that we are already $10 million in the money per ship. So uh, making $40 million within six, eight months, not necessarily insanity, but I will, I will wait until we actually take that check. Okay, okay Jerry, I'll back off a little bit. It's, uh, no, it's, each investment is looked at individually, of course, and I think everyone in this panel will be very happy and a lot of people in the room if no ships are ever ordered again, but that's not gonna happen. If you do look at the order book, as, as Jerry said, and it's 12, 13%, whatever you feel the right number is, it's a good time to order. Um, and the prices are historically low. But in our industry, we've always been a victim of overbuilding because you know it's the it's the tragedy of the commons. If um, if I'm the only one who orders a ship, it works out really well. And of course, uh, you know nothing is static in the world or in this market. And the danger is, we all see the numbers Jerry mentioned, and we all order, and the market that you thought was going to be there two years out is not there. Um, we don't order new ships because we have a. Uh, I, I personally have a problem trying to predict what's going to happen two years out in a market that's volatile to begin with. Um, if you have a large enough portfolios of vessels, then it makes a lot of sense to have a continuous renewal program, in which case the price right now is very attractive. Daniel, any comments? Where's ICBC's mind on investment in new tonnage now? Yeah, uh, I think for many of the uh, shipping owners, it seems uh, a good investment right now because uh, right now the new building contract's price is quite low. Considering uh, the uh, steel price in China uh, has increased from 2,000 per ton uh, to 5,000 per ton during the last year after the Chinese government freeze out of uh, the backward and redundant industrial capacity of the steel industry. So it means that the uh, steel price is definitely will rise. And of course, uh, the labor cost is also will rise. Uh, so it means that the building contract price can, is quite impossible for them to uh, decrease. And uh, what's more from the supply side, and many people thought they would be uh, quite a big amount of scribe and also the new regulation will uh, make, uh, make some old vessels become less competitive and the oil price uh, uh, includes and it's not good for, not good for, the, uh, tank, uh, for the vessels trade on the spot market. So from their perspective, the asset value is definitely will increase. If, if I may, I'm, I'm not going to comment on the VLCC orders, but on the MR orders, if I may. Please. Um, we've seen the order book at a very low, uh, historically low levels. 
uh, it seems the supply of vessels for the next couple of years uh, uh, look very good. The overall uh, order book looks to be at the region of 5 to 6 percent. Demand for products is uh, really strong, is in the region of 3 percent. This is projected by IEA. Uh, therefore, we see a very well-balanced market. Um, um, shipyards that traditionally have been building MRs are not in the market anymore, so we've seen a limited supply of vessels. So, so uh, um, overall, for the sector, it looks good uh, going forward. Thanks, Eddie. If I could just stay with you then for, for a moment. Um, we, we touched already on the 2020 impact and what fuels the world fleet, never mind about the tanker fleet, will be uh, using going forward. Obviously, a very small percentage of the world fleet is going to be scrubber uh, compliant uh, from that perspective. Uh, what does that mean for the tr uh, product tanker uh, demand? Are you, are you betting a peak in rates as we get closer to 2020? Yeah, um, <laughs> it's a very interesting question. Uh, the, um, our projections are, of course, that uh, low sulfur fuel uh, demand will skyrocket. Uh, I mean, the projections today are for an increase in demand of approximately 3 to 3.3 million barrels per day. Therefore, this demand has to be covered by refineries. We don't know exactly uh, if the refineries are ready to, provide, to support the increased uh, demand, uh, but uh, definitely it's an interesting story developing for Mars as this uh, low fuel will have to be transported to the bunkering ports. In the meantime, fleets uh, that uh, include eco-vessels will have an advantage over the older units. Uh, we believe that uh, slow steaming will prevail um, and therefore, the eco-vessels will have an advantage over the remaining uh, fleet. Um, at the same time, uh, of course, uh, a disadvantage will be that the uh, price per ton for the low sulfur will skyrocket as well, as demand will go higher. So we see definitely a, a year of disruption, uh, 2020, but things will normalize by 2021. We, we, we estimate that demand for product tankers will be high for 2020. Vasily, uh, George, any comments on that one? I agree with uh, what the previous speaker have said. Uh, with uh, the new regulations, the new fuels that are going to be uh, created, basically we're going to see new trades from uh, the more uh, modern refineries, which uh, we know that uh, these refineries uh, are in uh, the Far East, in the Middle East, to more to places that uh, where we've seen closure of uh, refineries in the OECD countries, and uh, therefore this uh, trade of the new products, uh, I think, is going to give uh, a boost for product tankers' demand. Remember the chaos yeah, created by Y2K? No, there was none. Um, we're hoping for a lot of chaos, and you know, certainly the world's not ready for the displacement of, of the uh, fuel oils and, and the residual fuel. So uh, I don't think any of us know, uh, but certainly the refineries aren't ready for it. I mean, very, very few people put scrubbers on their ships. Uh, there'll be some chaos, some displacement, any of that's going to be good for us. And how much there is, you know, it, I, I can't predict. And we are going also to face technical problems. I mean, te the, 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 the technical problems, absolutely, which we are, we are already facing yeah. in some cases. 
I mean, we all, I think you all know what happened in Houston a few weeks uh, back when we had a lot of vessels that have been contaminated as a result of a bad uh, blend. So imagine what will happen when, you know, the majority of these new produced fuels will be blended fuels. They're not going to be straight run fuels. Yeah, there are serious blending issues in the fuels and also the, um, the, the sulfur in the fuel uh, lubricates different parts of the engine and when that sulfur is gone, the engines aren't built um, for this type of fuel. There'll be operational issues on that end too. Yeah, nothing much to add uh, ex except quite a bit of uncertainty and uh, dislocations, which are always good for shipping. But uh, I, I, the, the main point is George's point, which is you have to look, if you're trying to, to predict, you have to look at the refinery base, which is the most flexible. And, um, and I, this tends to be the, the Middle East and now India. So uh, versus OECD, so to the extent that flows have to go flow to OECD, then that means more ton miles, which is good for rates. Now, whether rates skyrocket, as Eddie suggested, I'm not so sure. But on the other hand, you know, the only way is up from where they are today. So, and if I if I may, a final point on this. Um, Something to consider is what happens as we reach uh, 2020 or just a few months earlier. So you have all this onshore commercial storage of heavy fuel oil that potentially will have to be moved uh, to floating storage as, uh, the, uh, as demand for this product will fall. Uh, potentially this will go on to VLCCs or Suez Maxis as uh, it will have to be moved uh, for uh, different uh, types of consumption, potentially uh, power generation. Uh, you'll probably see heavy fuel oil go into Contango because um, of uh, the sudden shock in uh, drop in demand that should uh, favor floating storage even further then you might see a big movement just before 2020 of middle distillates so uh, for uh, as um, um, storage is being created and uh, inventories are being created for middle distillates so there should be uh, quite uh, quite a bit of commotion which as uh, Vasily said it's always good for shipping so Jerry let me let me ask you a question then and, and maybe others can chip in here We've seen limited orders over recent years for LR3s. Is this demand for fuel from our own industry likely to see more interest in Suez Maxis carrying products or conversion of existing Suez Maxis to meet that demand? Well, uh, you know, a lot has been said about LR2s and uh, how they will play into the uh, product tanker trade. But uh, for me, there were always Aframaxes with an option, an option to trade in the product tanker market. So it is, this is obviously the case with uh, LR3s or coated Suez Maxes as well. Um, so far, you wouldn't need any LR3s. Uh, the gas oil that, need, that uh, was being moved from east to the west was being serviced and still is by Suez Maxes uh, picking up uh, their maiden cargo as they're still clean of gas oil to, to the west. So uh, if traders uh, have uh, a constant flow of new builds, why would they need to uh, employ more expensive ships? And you know, this is also the first voyage, which means that probably the vessel was not vetted and so it's a cheap uh, voyage. 
So all in all, I think you have to see a strong tanker market as a whole, both products and crude, before um, you see actual demand being created for LR2s and uh, even more so LR3s. Yes, I do agree that uh, the change in um, the sulfur cap and the changes it will bring potentially uh, will mean more middle distillates being moved and need for more coated tonnets. I think it's going to be good for product tankers. Uh, but uh, we, I think the first ingredient is a good tanker market. Okay, can I, can I just ask Daniel then to come in here? Um, we touched actually on the gas, uh, previous gas panel about China and the move towards uh, cleaner uh, energy generation. We've obviously seen the car industries in Europe, but also globally uh, give commitments to move away from diesel. Uh, many of us, I guess, in the room were at a uh, Maritime Cyprus where I think Bob was actually on the panel and it was entitled, Is There a Future for the Tanker Industry? Uh, given the, uh, the car industry's um, uh, direction. From a, from a China's perspective, Daniel, you mentioned the move more towards electric vehicles. Where do you think this is going to uh, drive product trade going forward? Uh, yes, uh, as just mentioned, uh, the Chinese uh, oil assumption will not uh, increase as far as before. Uh, during the uh, low oil price period, the Chinese government has increased at least three times for the consumption tax of the oil. Uh, that's when the oil price is around 30, 30 barrels to 50 barrels per uh, uh, dollars per barrel. So it means that uh, resulting in at least half of the oil price uh, now is the tax. Uh, so when the oil price increased to, for example, 80 to 90 barrels, the oil, the uh, petroleum price is definitely will be much higher than. Uh, than what we have used to. So right now we have quite a lot of electric cars, especially in the city areas. And also uh, the Chinese government are encouraged, uh, we are using some uh, alternative uh, energy like solar panel. Uh, uh, from my, in my hometown, uh, to install a, a, a solar panel on your roof is for free. It means that uh, for you in the next uh, more than 10 years, you can sell the electricity for, to the, uh, to, to the uh, state-owned uh, state uh, electricity company. It definitely will also reduce the, uh, the requirement for the oil. So uh, from my understanding, um, they, uh, they they, uh, we right now, from the understanding, so in the long term, we are needing less oil. So, uh, though uh, presently we don't uh, don't limit our lendings to the to the product sector, but in the long term, we might uh, reduce our portfolio in, in the whole sector. I um, I think the, uh, the the there was some. Um data from IEA last week, the data was suggesting that uh, by 2030, the displacement of gasoline sales is expected to be from two and a half to four and a half million barrels a day due to electric. Um, 
However, I mean, gasoline demand is still um, about eight to ten times of that amount. So, yes, electric is, is playing a bigger role, um, but we have to put it in perspective. At the moment, electric sales are about 1% of global car sales. Uh, that's expected to go to 20% by 2030, driven primarily by China and India. And so that by 2030, about 40% of the fleet may be electric. So things are moving that way for sure, and that's the big elephant in the room. On the other hand, the report was very, uh, it's very interesting to note in the report that um, governments were supposed to lose, under this scenario, about 100 billion of annual taxes. Uh, as the regime stands today, electric is very heavily subsidized. So there's a, there's a, there's a dilemma or there's, a, there's, a, there's an offset between increased electric use and continued subsidization uh, of this use, which really is not so untenable given um, the global um, consolidation, let's say, of public finances. So it's happening, it's a, it's, it's a big question. Uh, it's not happening that fast, uh, but it's something to watch very quite closely. Okay, so just, just if I may, just a final comment. I agree with uh, Vasily, of course, uh, but it's a gradual process. It's not going to happen overnight. Uh, so, uh, in the meantime, let's not forget that product tankers are very diverse. They can carry from veg oils up to diesel. And just for a comment, I mean, last year our major cargo was veg oils rather than gasoline or diesel. So we have a lot of cargos that we can carry. Okay, so in our last uh, minute, um, other panels have already talked about the uh, tsunami, let's say, of new environmental regulations, possible impact of slow steaming. Um, what do the panel think maybe in one word is going to be the biggest disruptor for the tanker market over the next year? Maybe we start with uh, Jerry. I do agree that uh, the impact of the, of the new regulatory environment is going to be the most important um, challenge or disruption um, in, uh, for us, uh, for shipping. The, don't forget that we talk a lot about the low sulfur cap, uh, but uh, in the end, the implementation of the ballast water treatment um, uh, systems treaty starts really um, over the next uh, few years as many of the IOPPs uh, and special surveys come, f come up for renewal. I do think that there is a lot of opportunity uh, because of this disruption, especially for um, owners uh, that are uh, willing to endorse uh, these regulatory uh, changes and invest in them. Uh, and uh, are able to take advantage of um, potentially energy efficient uh, ships. Um, and um, having said that, maybe if, um, because I think this is very obvious and this is not necessarily the case in, in shipping, it's not that every Posidonia we have um, such a big, uh, let's say, industry disruptor. What I found interesting this time round is also the digitalization of shipping and how much uh, we have discussed about new technology. 
This was completely absent from previous Posidonia, and maybe after 2020, this might be also something that uh, will uh, become a potential disruptor for all of us. About 20 years ago, we had the, uh, two, the two-tier market because of double hulls. I think this, this new uh, tsunami, as, as was mentioned, has the potential to overcome the double hull um, impact. Uh, part of it is the uncertainty, part of it is the lead time, and, and part of it, is, of course, is the market being so low. So I, I think um, the market has not discounted the possible impact. Uh, I think it would be large. Uh, we just don't know exactly how it's going to pan out, but I, I, I'm very confident that um, it's going to be a, a big positive. I think the question is which of the smaller players are going to survive this tsunami of uh, regulation that is coming. Water ballast, 2020, NOx and particles in 2023. And by small, maybe we're talking about companies that are one to five vessels, possibly ten. They will have to face uh, some tough uh, you know, decisions, especially in an environment with uh, not uh, too many lending banks uh, out there. So this, and I think uh, the second uh, uh, potential uh, opportunity for uh, consolidation in the tiger industry, we're talking about uh, funds which have been into shipping and are looking for uh, an exit. If uh, they won't be able to exit through traditional ways like uh, you know, an IPO, then most probably you're going to see some of these uh, assets uh, being offered to larger players to consolidate with. Yeah, I, I think this natural cycle has some time to play out, whether it's another six months or a year. Um, I mean, the, the hope is, or the probability is, that it'll play out just as 2020 starts to hit, and you'll have a combination of, um, of effects that create some sort of tsunami or huge change in the market. And it's always the inflection point that we look for. Um, and once that inflection point hits, um, we should have, you know, happy days again. Yeah, the, I mean, Vasilis mentioned the double hull in 94. I mean, also back then it was uh, phased out. The vessels were phased out. This is not happening in 2020. We all have to comply in one day as of the 1st of January. So this will be the major disruptor. On the, on the um, positive news that we uh, listen is that uh, at least two majors are experimenting in blends. Uh, therefore, um, um, that might be good news for next year, um, um, but uh, also for, uh, for as far as we're concerned, this is the major disruptor for uh, next year. Uh, from my understanding, the most uh, disruptor will be Mr. Donald Trump's policy against other nations, and in the long term, uh, in the, maybe he will be the next president again, so it's maybe not good for the shipping industry. For the long term, I think the technology. Right now, we are talking about the intelligence shapes, and uh, it definitely will change the whole industry. Well, thank you all. Maybe you can join me in thanking our panelists, and I wish everyone.